everything they used to convict them, everything that they used to eliminate other people, everything to discredit these confessions or why they didn't believe these other confessions. None of that was given. We got partial of it. We know it's there. And so that's what Jamie needs to get. Snow Files, Season 2, Episode 33, Discovery Motion Breakdown. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. motions for discovery. I've been filing motions for transcripts. 
do credit Patrick personally, which you guys heard from just recently, giving me a lot of great advice about how to move forward. I mean, Patrick was, I think, the one who told me, dude, the only way you're ever going to get a chance to look at the discovery materials in this case is if you proceed pro se. You know, it's a big step. It's, it's, it's a scary move. But, I mean, if you want to see what's there, that's what you're going to have to do. And, I mean, that gave me uh, some courage to do it. But at the same time, as I'm reading through this transcript, the judge is telling me that Post-Conviction Hearing Act is about everything that's on the record. And, and you know, and really it's not on direct appeal that's when you can only raise issues that are on the record. You can't raise anything outside the record on direct appeal. It's in a post-conviction that you have to raise issues that arise outside the record. And, uh, you know, this judge is telling me, oh, no, it's about everything that's on the record. So he's pressuring me, and, and make no mistake about it, I don't care what the, the transcripts relate, he was pressuring me to, to go pro se without an attorney, and at the same time, He's giving me, I, I don't know if you could call it giving me legal advice, but he's definitely talking legal about legal things that were absolutely wrong. And I, and I wish we could get a an attorney. We've got a couple of attorney friends that help us out from time to time with things. And I wish I could get one of them to actually read that hearing and tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. I think the judge was absolutely incorrect in what he was saying about what I could raise and what I could raise in an amended post-conviction. But the motion itself, though, I feel good about it. And regardless of what the judge decides to do, I feel better knowing that you guys, people that are listening and following what's going on, I feel better knowing that at least you guys know that this thing isn't being played out on, you know, above board. This is not what justice and truth and, and you know here's the thing and this is this is something that I, I hope the judge will consider I hope that his decision hinges on the concept that you know you can't have justice without the truth and the truth is contained within those documents and I hope that he recognizes that and his, his decision reflects that so that's how I feel about it I'm really uh, we posted it I'm really interested in, in hearing what some of you all out there think about it. I mean, I'm no lawyer, and I know a lot of you guys aren't either. So, I mean, what does your gut tell you about it? Mine tells me that they'll never be able to claim that it was accidental, it was happenstance, it was oversight. They withheld the evidence that directly reflected their case, and that's not justice, and it never can be. So I appreciate everybody listening in, and I'm uh, curious to hear uh, what your feedback is. Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snowfiles Patreon team for a flat rate of 5 bucks a month, or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout-out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the Join Our Patreon button. In last week's episode, we brought you up to date about the FOIA issues, including the 10-year fight for the documents. We also outlined a few examples of exculpatory evidence that was withheld from Jamie prior to trial, 
and we also included some of the closing arguments to illustrate how those critical items could have been used by Jamie's defense team to impeach witnesses. Honestly, Jamie didn't have a chance, but we are excited about the discovery motion. It's been a long time coming. As mentioned last week, Jamie started fighting for discovery even before his trial and continued after he was convicted. Then in 2007, he was granted discovery when he went pro se. At that time, he was given less than 800 documents and around 30 tapes. In 2011, we started filing FOIAs and eventually sued the city of Bloomington. In 2016, Judge Butler ordered a subpoena to the Illinois State Police and to the Bloomington Police Department for documents related to forensic evidence in relation to the DNA motion. It was at that time that Jamie's attorney discovered that there was evidence in those documents that had never been turned over to Jamie. So let's start with the hearing that was attached to the motion, Exhibit A. Tam, what was the hearing about, and why is it relevant to the motion for discovery? Jamie was seeking to go pro se because his appointed attorney, Keith Davis, was attempting to file a five-page post-conviction motion, and they didn't even have the discovery. Jamie didn't feel like he had a choice, um, and that's very apparent in this transcript. Davis even admitted that he didn't have discovery. Yeah, so I read this transcript line by line, and there is so much that you can read between the lines and put into context and to really understand how we got where we are today. It's so important how all these things happened. It's not just that Keith Davis was going to file this one five-page paper and said he didn't have any discovery. If you read line by line, you can kind of get a better feel for it. So what I understood from it was the reason that he wanted to go pro se was because he had a disagreement with Keith Davis, not only about what you just said, Tam, but he felt like he would not plead issues of importance, such as like letters and affidavits and things that went bad during the trial. Keith Davis thought they had no merit. And Jamie, you know, was talking to the judge about it. And he's like, I have no choice. I have to decide right now. Am I going to go with this lawyer or go pro se and represent myself? And if I go with the lawyer, these issues will never, will never see the light of day. So I really don't have a choice and I can't live with that. So I have to go pro se. And interestingly enough to me, um, which I thought of, you know, really surprised me that the Judge Bernardi, the same judge who sentenced him to natural life and overruled the jury's 30-year sentence and said that he was not able to be rehabilitated, he starts giving Jamie like a pep talk and saying how smart and capable he is and that he believes that he can represent himself and that he's smart and he's not uneducated and he believes that, you know, he, he can do it. And, you know, I couldn't believe that contradiction from going from saying just six years earlier that you smoked pot and you were truant and you drank beer when you were 18, but now all of a sudden you're in a penitentiary and you're an educated man who's better than your own lawyer. That was really interesting to me to start that hearing off. So let's talk about that. I guess the point I'd like to make is, as we heard in Jamie's intro, it really looked like the judge wanted him to go pro se, didn't it? 
Yeah, it did. At one point, he was like, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. So would you like me to grant this for you? You know, and he was even saying things like, I'll write an order for you for the prison to allow you access to the law library. And, you know, it just seemed like such a phenomenal task, even for me as somebody with a master's degree. And I've I think, uh, you know, a lot more (laughs) educated than Jamie was, but just somebody who's used to writing these big papers like that, he only gives them 90 days. Like I, that's very overwhelming to me, let alone somebody sitting in a prison on lockdown who can't use a phone, who can't, (laughs) it was just, I couldn't believe it. But the judge thought that Jamie was completely capable, just 90 days. And I don't know that he thought that, but that's what he told him. Because I think he wanted him to go pro se. Jamie's better off without a lawyer as far as successfully filing a post-conviction petition. And it's interesting because he he not only, like you said, pepped him up, (laughs) told him how smart he was and how capable he was, but he also tied his hands as far as being able to get assistance. So there was this back and forth about Jamie being able to file the letter that they're referring, that Jamie's referring to is the letter from Randy Howard that was suggesting jury tampering. Well, you can't just file a letter. You need to have an affidavit. And he was like, how how am I possibly supposed to get this affidavit? And as Jamie said, they had had previous hearings on this issue, but he was trying to get an investigator or some outside help. And the judge kept saying, well, what about your sister? Right. He saying, what about your sister? And don't you have a family? And what about your wife? And they and can your do parents. Yeah, he said, and your parents. He's like, I can't get a hold of your wife and your parents. And that's just the truth. <laughs> right, right. And his parents are deceased. So he's telling them, well, everybody else is in your shoes. Everybody in the penitentiary is in your shoes. But he said, everybody in the penitentiary is in your shoes and their cases get dismissed in the first round. And and wasn't that a weird statement? Yeah, because it was like I I didn't I read it a couple times. I couldn't understand the context. Like, is he warning him like you better do a good job, or was that the motive all along for it to get dismissed, or is he saying like you're smarter than them, like you can figure this out, like or you're lucky you got this far because other people don't? Like, I don't know. That was like really weird. How is he supposed to get? help. You know, he's saying, well, my sister's working, you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, Well, she can pay for an investigator. She can hire an investigator. Can't she do this? Can't she do that? And it was just so odd to me for him to bring in an outside, you know, someone from outside the court and put that burden on Jamie because you just can't get be very difficult to get an affidavit from prison. Right. Right. So let's go back to they have that conversation. And then there comes an issue where he says, Okay, but now you'd be entitled to all the discovery. So it's like dangling the carrot over him because it's like before you were just the defendant. So you weren't entitled to that, only counsel was. But now when you go pro se, Technically, if I'm right, workman, he says to the state, you're entitled to all of the discovery then. And the the state agrees. Yeah, he is. So he says to Keith Davis, who is sitting right there, who just pops up in the transcript, who I had no idea this guy that he hates, who's his lawyer, shoulder to shoulder with him. He pops up and he says, yeah, he doesn't have the entire 
discovery packet, all he has is the child transcript and some copies of common law records. And Jamie starts saying that his co-defendant keeps giving him all these extra papers that he never even got to see. And so that's the issue. So the state agrees and says that they're going to give it to him because the stroke victim, the recovering stroke victim that represented him is now dead and Frank Pitzel is in prison. So they say they're they're going to give it to him. They act like it's it's no big issue, no big deal. And then Jamie's lawyer at the time, Keith Davis, he interrupts this whole intensive conversation and says, Judge, am I now relieved of this case because I have another one to attend to? And yeah, yeah. I like that I go now. Yeah. Because <laughs> I really don't care. <laughs> Yeah. And the judge is like, yeah, I'll file a motion. And then Davis just walks off. And to me, that was also just very poignant how Jamie's been abandoned now in court time after time after time after time. And how aloof could this guy be and flip it and have no empathy and not care at all? He just wanted to get relieved of his duties. That's it. But this demonstrates to the listeners why the exoneration project was so desperately needed because nobody would help Jamie. I mean, the judge is saying, get your sister, get your wife, get your dead parents, get money from them. He even says like, why isn't your sister here today (laughs) in the beginning? So that just demonstrates that whole thing, why it was so important that somebody with the ability to properly hunker down and do this job stepped in. I know it's just speculation, really, but do we know what the reasoning or the motivation of the judge was to pressure Jamie to go pro se? Because as he, as the judge himself said that most or all, I, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but they're not successful. People that do pro se petitions from prison themselves are not successful. I don't think that he was interested in him being successful. The judge looking at it is saying that you're better off with a lawyer than without a lawyer, but he was happy to comply. That is my speculation that he didn't, he did want him to go pro se because he didn't think that he would succeed. And the other way, you know, you're reading it though, is like, uh, He also, on one hand, seems like in good faith that he's, because he's also like educating Jamie the entire time. He's like, at this step, we're going to do this. You can file this motion here. This is why you can't go back and bring in stuff about investigative work. This is how pro se works and these post-conviction things work is that it's only about paperwork and what was done at trial. He even gives him a whole lesson on why Frank Pitzel being discovered as an alcoholic. He gives him a whole lesson on the legalities of why that doesn't work now for this petition. So it's like, he's got a lot of patience and he's like really taking his time with him. And it's just like, where the hell were you when it mattered when you were sitting on the bench during the original trial? Like why, where did you get all this patience from and empathy and support for Jamie Snow? (laughs) But he wasn't telling him. And I agree with Jamie on that. I don't believe that he was telling him correctly. If you, if you think about it, a, a direct appeal, everything in trial can be used. That's it. The only thing in direct appeal that can be used, this is what he's telling him. You can use everything that was in trial, but you can't use anything else. And Jamie's saying, well, wait a minute. Pitzel went to prison after the trial. All of that happened after the trial. See, post-conviction is about new evidence, period. 
it's only about new evidence. And this is what Jamie is arguing. But the judge is telling him, no, you you can only use stuff about the trial. And that that's that is not correct. That is not correct. And that's why Jamie said in his intro, he would love for an attorney to go over this and see what they think, because he doesn't agree that he was even given the proper advice. It is not. It is only about post-conviction is only about new evidence. You say you have new evidence. That's what post-conviction is. Direct appeal, you can only use issues that happened during the trial. It's about constitutional violations that occurred during the trial. So he wasn't being all, I'm going to try to be helpful. I think he was giving him the wrong advice yeah well that's why it's so important that we have these episodes and break it down line for line because you did a really good job on the prelude to this and then jamie does this intro and stuff like that but it's like going through this line by line helps break out and tease out everything for the listeners to something where like a normal person can understand what the f happened and how they got away with it like we're saying and the other thing that i want to bring up which was like really poignant to me was that how we were talking about the judge keeps pressuring him about somebody who can do the legwork for him. He literally says, I'm not going to give you an investigator, but if you just need someone to do the legwork for you, we can talk about that opportunity later. But how, I don't know what the term is ironic or what, but it's like just three years later, Tam Alex would enter the picture. So here Jamie is in 2007 arguing about how he needs somebody to help him get these affidavits and everything. So now this all comes full circle, this one little hearing, you know, it just really demonstrates how all of this happened and why it's so important today and why the exoneration project and Tim Alex and this podcast and everybody who's involved, why everybody's just biting their teeth in and sinking in and, and not giving up. And it's, it's very overwhelming for a lot of other people because this is a case with a 30 year history. So when we had truth and justice with Bob Ruff, it was like, that was the struggle was how do we present all of this and still keep people interested? There's just so much, but I think this one episode we're doing on, this is the new motion and this is all the stuff that happened before and how we got here today. I think that really breaks it down really good for people. I just want to let everybody know that the way it ended was just that the state says, sure, they're going to get it. No problem. They need 30, just 30 days to get the documents together, which is a stark contrast to this new motion that we had now in 2021, where they needed 90 more. They wanted 90 more days, things like that. They say they only need 30 days. And the judge says, "Okay, Jamie, I'll give you 90 days and you can file extensions if you go on lockdown or whatever. And then that's it. (laughs) That's where it ends. That's it. And then he landed up getting less than 900 documents and he got less than 30 tapes. And then we move forward to the FOIAs, which is what Ray and I were so involved in. We started filing FOIAs in 2011. Now, Ray and Tam, you had filed a, a series of FOIA requests How many documents had you received through those FOIA requests when the lawsuit was finally settled? Coming up with an exact number of pages that we've received, well over the 900 pages of uh, information that Jamie was given. 
I filed probably 60 or 70 FOIA requests. Tam has probably done an equal amount. And every time we get a response, people have changed. So a different FOIA officer has looked at it and releases different information. So one time we will get like a thousand pages for a simple, we ask for one report, we get a thousand pages back. We ask for another report and we'll you know, kick back the, what, what Tam and I have been referring to as, as, as a data dump. They will recopy everything that we had before, plus some extra papers will start showing up. And that's how Tam and I have been been putting things together, rebuilding, the, kind of rebuilding their case, because uh, they'll redact in one document a name and an address and some other information. The next time we get that same document again, a name will appear. Other names will be redacted in a different manner. And, and it's been it's been a long process. So let me say how many documents have we gotten? Probably in total, probably about five or six thousand different pages. We would ask for detectives' notes one time and we get a whole series of papers of detectives notes that weren't in it before. So I said, but it will also include all the other ones they originally gave us. So it's hard to calculate exactly how many pages we have received. We've also FOIA'd other agencies. So like the Bloomington report would lead to another agency. So we go, go that direction. Now I would assume Bloomington also had these some point. I, a prime example would be the, the state police. We got pages from the state police that Bloomington would have also received. So when we asked Bloomington for all the documents, they should have included the documents that they had in their possession from the state police. It's part of their investigation. It's part of what they used to convict Jamie. So that should be all that information should have been made available to Jamie as part of his discovery. And that's what uh, that's what the hearing's all about coming up. Sometimes you receive several copies of, of the same document through a, a series of various requests. You're saying that some of these are redacted differently when you get them? They're same, it's the same file, but it's redacted differently. Exactly. We get a report. A report will say, Officer Smith responded to the scene and did this. He talked to somebody to be redacted. Somebody's address was redacted. The next time we got, we ask a different question and say, well, we want somebody else's report that was referenced. We will get Officer Smith's report back. But this next time, it may have the name of who he talked to, which was redacted from the first one. You got to understand that. This has not been a, a quick process. We get the, their response from the, the initial FOIA. The initial FOIA request for the, the entire investigation report probably took them a year to produce. I mean, all these other agencies. I, I've, I FOIA'd some federal agencies, and their letter back to my FOIA request says, okay, we have your request, and we will be responding within the next 12 or 16 months. It's that long of a process. So we ask a question. They have like five days to give an answer, but they usually say because of the time, uh, the amount of the research that has to go, 
they request an extension and they get it. They get the extensions and the process takes takes forever. As I said, some some of these reports are when you put the request in, it goes to the FOIA officer. Every every agency has a FOIA officer. And they're the ones that review it and approve it and redact it and stuff like that. Uh, so over time, we've had different FOIA officers looking at this. They've had different lawyers for the agencies approving different things. Uh, the FOIA suit, uh, a judge says what shouldn't have been redacted. And then we got some more information. Like I said, it's a long a long, tedious process getting all the information together. But really, I would say, Ray, if we're looking at the Bloomington Police Department and we're putting all of these other agencies aside, we're looking at the Bloomington Police Department. I'm almost positive that it was less than a thousand just because they kept giving us the same documents, although they were redacted differently. We were able to get more information and every, every once in a while they would slip something in and it would just be stunning. It would be astonishing, you know, like letters between the state's attorney and Bruce Rowland or the memo that we got. It was almost like they were just like, you know, they were data dumping us. They're like, we're not going to go through all this shit again. Right. They just keep asking for the same thing. And then a different person would go through and redact everything and they would miss some parts. And we really got crucial exculpatory evidence through that process, but still they weren't redacting everything. So I guess my point is, I don't think that we got more than a thousand documents from Bloomington Police Department. We can look at it and say, we got all of these documents, but it was over and over and over and the same the same documents, but redacted differently. Do you agree with that, Ray? To a point, because we got the, we got the original report. And what, what was missing from that, just from common sense, I said, the police have to use, have to give up or the, or the state has to give what they, their information that they are using to, to prove their case. Now, Remember, we looked at reports that it would say a detective talked to somebody. Well, detectives have, they have notes. And that's one thing, like our first request, we wanted to, re, we wanted all the reports. Well, they gave us reports, but they did not give us the supplemental information, like, like the detective's notes. So we went back and said, give us the detective's notes. That would be a, like a specific FOIA. We want the detective's notes related to case 2150. So they would give us, when they kicked back the second time, they included some detective's notes, but they also dumped all the original stuff again. So that's why I went from a 1,000 pages to probably 1,500 pages. And, that, and that's the way it would keep going. I would ask them for specifics about the testing. Again, they would kick back. They may kick back the information they had about, say, fingerprints, but they would also include all the other stuff they already sent us once before. I, I looked at it. They, they were just trying to uh, trying to mess with us pretty much, but that's what we muddled through. 
It was very frustrating. And then finally, after going through this about 10 years, Matt Topic from Lovey and Lovey represented us in a lawsuit. And as we said in the last episode, they settled that lawsuit, but we still didn't get feel like we got everything. And now we know, right? Because, and that's what this motion is about. And it's important that you understand about this hearing and the FOIAs and the new evidence that we've discovered in the FOIAs through this long process. Because during this whole time, there's a DNA motion before the court. That motion was before Judge Butler. She subpoenaed the ISP and the BPD for an in-camera session. So she ordered that, and that means that only the attorneys could go in and look. And so Tara was Jamie's attorney at that time. She had to schedule time to go down to McLean County Law and Justice Center and sit there from Chicago, (laughs) sit there and go through all of these and take notes. She wasn't allowed to make copies. She wasn't allowed to discuss anything that she saw. So that whole thing was about that DNA motion. That was about the forensics motion because Tara had asked for documents related to the forensics so she could do a crime scene investigation, look at all of the crime scene data, everything related to the crime scene to properly file her DNA motion or supplement the one that she has. So that was successfully ordered. But what she discovered was there was like 8,000 documents from the ISP and the BPD. So now what the state is saying, what they said in the, in the last hearing was that they're, well, those, those don't matter because we're here about the DNA motion. We're not here about discovery. And Lauren is saying, Judge, you have the right to order discovery. What are we supposed to do? Just look away when we have all of this exculpatory information in here. And then she she lists everything as best she can without revealing anything, because that was just a weird thing instead of just turning everything over. But they've never just turned everything over. Let's go through that list. That list of stuff is so important and it's it's shocking. And maybe to some people who have been like critical of us and been like, why don't you just, you know, I remember when you're there, why don't you just talk about, you know, the investigation or all I hear is stuff about how he's innocent. But what, you know, what happened with the real crime? Well, if we go through the list, you're going to see because number one on this list so this is stuff that Tara got to to view and she knows is in those documents is information related to previously unknown witnesses. So did they did they interview the the people that were in the car like the trucks that pulled up? I mean what what is that? What does that even I, I don't know what what that is. It's like wow. Seems important. And then there's um, memorandum number two, memorandum related to specific witnesses. And that's something that we knew about, right? Because that's in FOIA, but it's heavily redacted. All right. But and we then... did find a few things in that memo that are really, really important. 
Okay, so then this is the one that I think a lot of listeners are really going to want more information on because it's something that Truth and Justice does all the time. It's something that a lot of people who listen to true crime are always trying to get at. So number three she has listed in here is Profile of the Killer. I want to read it. Where is it? So you're telling me they had a profile of the killer? I mean, did Jamie match it? How come he's not allowed to have that? All of the stuff he should have had before trial. I mean, did the profile not match? Is that why it wasn't used and it was just kind of put away? I think that's probably it. Then number four is information related to other robberies that were potentially connected to this crime. So that is what we were talking about with Truth and Justice with Bob Roth was the Millers, things like that, the other string of robberies that were going on. So obviously that was withheld for reasons that benefited the state. Don't give the defense alternative witnesses. So then number five, we have information regarding alternative alternate suspects. <laughs> So, you know, just what I said. Number six, numerous lead sheets. So those are the investigative sheets that the police write about. There, In Jamie's case, a lot of them are just like handwritten statements about all of the people they interviewed. Number seven, references to unknown lineups and photo arrays. Yes. Where is that? <laughs> you were just talking about that, Tammy. Like that, how you didn't believe that they only showed that small little handful of photos to Martinez and Gutierrez. And then, you know, the the two of them agreed on one person who's not even Jamie. Then we have number eight, confessions by others to this crime. What is that? (laughs) What (laughs) the hell? Okay, people, bombshell. So in this 8,000 page file that they will not give us that, Tam and Ray have been fighting over that just explained why they're trying to get these papers. There's a confession in there. What the hell? And it's plural, right? Confessions by others. (laughs) Yes. So if nobody believes that this man was wrongfully convicted, or if you guys think we're full of shit, I mean, look what is in there. How could it get any worse than that? (sighs) And all the time we're saying, oh, but Frank Pitzel, Frank Pitzel, Frank Pitzel, he didn't ask this, he didn't do that. You know, we went back through it and line by line and saw how with the information he did have, he could have turned this trial on its head. But I mean, obviously he didn't get that confessions by other witnesses to this crime. I mean, even Frank Pitzel would have used that during trial. You would think. So then um, number nine is unidentified witnesses. Who else <laughs> who gave a who statement? Else? What the hell? Who else was there that unidentified witnesses? I mean, wow. Yep. It's... Then we have tips to the police about different perpetrators. So I think that, you know, we had a bunch of lead sheets and a lot of stuff was blacked out. And on Truth and Justice, we were like, oh, why didn't they go down one by one? How can we tell they even cleared these people? Well, apparently there's even more than that. Then we have number 11 accusations that others were responsible Okay, so was there this weird little thing in Bloomington where everybody was pointing the finger at somebody else and then the only one that they brought to light was Jamie Snow? So this could have happened to somebody else too. Right. Um, 12 is identification of others. Identification of others. Identification oh, yeah, of from others. the lineups. That's what that must mean, identifying other people in the lineup. I don't know. Wouldn't it be nice to know? Or the guy with the scar. Weren't we talking about that? The guy with the scar on his face, that was a big issue, issue, right? Mm-hmm. 
Then there's um, 13 non-identifications of Mr. Snow. So he was not identified by how many other people besides Gutierrez and Martinez. Or were there other police reports that we've long thought there were other police reports, especially with Martinez, because he came up so much later. Now we know, right, they had a many, many, many more sessions with Martinez than they presented at trial because of the motion in Susan's trial that said they were going here and they were in the police department and they were talking to him here and talking to him here, all leading up from July 99. They were on him and after him and had him up there multiple times, even with Jeff Pilo talking about this case. So were there police reports? And even when Crow was investigating, were there police reports where Danny Martinez said it wasn't him? It wasn't him. We know in, from Susan's file that her investigator went out and talked to Martinez. What he said was those people they arrested in the paper, that's not who I saw, which was very effective in Susan's trial, right? But Foster wasn't in Jamie's trial. But right. the non-identifications of Mr. Snow could be the witnesses that were he, that were actually on the stand. Right. Uh, and they and they had previously not identified him. Mm-hmm. Then we have um, 14 grand jury transcripts. Now, I was under the impression I read all of the grand jury transcripts. We did get them. But it's important to point out and what I pointed out last week that this, although it's related to the FOIAs and this hearing that he had and the discovery that he didn't get pre-trial and even didn't get when he was granted discovery in 2007, these are two separate issues, right? Whatever we got in FOIA, because we found things that were not given to him that were very important, it only bolsters the argument that we need this discovery, but it is two completely separate matters. The point in this is that he should have gotten all of this information exactly pre-trial. Exactly. It's just like, look how obvious it is. You didn't even give him the grand jury transcripts where they indicted him. Mm -hmm. And then number 15, reference to a quote unquote picture file. I would love to see that in, in the first FOIA I ever filed in 2011. I was looking for those photo arrays and I have asked for pictures over and over because there's so many references to books, right? A through Z and all of that. Um, every time they're showing these photo arrays, well, I think they keep them in one place in a case. And they even said in the police reports, you know, like, AAA through ZZZ or A4 through A whatever. Where are those? The point being, we want to see if those, if those pictures were any of Jamie. We know there was a, a couple of pictures of Jamie in there, right? That he was shown multiple pictures of Jamie over the years, but we don't know what those pictures were. We want to see those pictures and yeah. a, a picture file. I mean, Obviously, just a whole picture file. Like, we what? don't what? even have all the crime scene photos. And we know that for sure, because we only have pictures of the two of two lifts, static lifts from the shoe prints. But then they're talking about how they took like a whole trail of them, you know? So it's like, 
there's more pictures. Where are they? We only have um, one autopsy photo and it's not a full body picture. It's a, one of the pectoral wounds. That's it. So, and they talked in the, in the autopsy, the police report was saying that they were taking pictures of all the wounds. Right. So we want to see the bruises. We want to, it's just crazy. Um, 16 recordings of interviews. So a lot of true crime people know that the transcript makes more sense when it's put into context. And when you get to hear the recording, you get to understand more things. And it's not only like the words that matter. What was it in Adnan Syed's case? The police were tapping on a map to indicate where the witness should say, you know, what his next response should be as far as locations were. They were just tapping. And then, you know, it wasn't until undisclosed listened to the tape that they could hear police giving away the answers. But in the black and white text, it looks like he's just coming up with them on his own. Right. Exactly. And they can write anything that they want to write. Right. That's what's so frustrating. Oh, about yeah. They can the- sit there and write pictures <laughs> back. It's a, give them a note. <laughs> but even in the police reports, and just to back up, when we're talking about the picture fall, it just occurred to me when we were talking about the wounds. All we have in there is that they said that the bruises looked like this. We don't know. Without seeing them, we don't know. Right. You know, exactly the state of those wounds and what they look like. And then we've got number 17 is a list of tapes, some of which the petitioner does not have. And 18 documents that directly contradicted or impeached witnesses who testified against Mr. Snow at trial. <sighs> so, yeah, I would love to have those documents because I feel like we created like a, um encyclopedia of the case and you know it would just be so gratifying to now have you know we're like <laughs> see we are you know we told you we were right you know we knew this didn't make sense and you know here we go they knew it all all along and you know we were it's right it's frustrating it's but, very I frustrating. Mean, this motion even if it got denied which i mean i don't think it's going to but i don't know what the outcome is going to be but this line number line number 17 of the motion on page three into four, just listing what they want in that 8,000 pages, number one through 17, that creates a record forever of what was withheld. So if anybody can read this, any citizen and think that this is kosher, that this is okay, I mean, then you've got something wrong with you. And I think that everybody could agree that, that that's not how a murder trial for an 18-year-old boy is supposed to go. Just reading the list, it's absolutely ridiculous that this is still being withheld. I think it's important that people know that the state is legally obligated by our current laws to turn all of this information over. Jamie's not asking for any special treatment here. The state's obligated by the law to turn this over. So I cannot imagine this being denied. But as we've seen, Cam and uh, Ray have been fighting to get information for 10 years. It even says... On number 19, to be clear, Mr. Snow does not seek any additional discovery at this time. Rather, he seeks the discovery that he is entitled to per Illinois Supreme Court Rule 412. So we want to make it clear. He was denied this discovery pre-trial. He didn't know any of this. And there there are a lot of things that we've already found in FOIA that he didn't know that he didn't, they did not turn over to him. And 
again, he was denied this in 2007 when he went pro se. So twice they have violated discovery rules, Illinois Supreme Court Rule 412. And it matters. I don't care what they say that this is just about the forensics. You can't. I mean, there's confessions in there. Are we just supposed to sweep that under the carpet and say, oh, well, we're not here for that. That's the frustrating part about it. Right. And the judge was, you know, kind of put through like, okay, well, what is it that you want? You know, Exoneration Project Tara Thompson, what is it that you want? What is it that you're saying that you want out of all these things? And they were like, okay, well, since nobody knows, since it's this big pile of papers, I'll let you look at it and then you make me a list of what it is that you want. But don't tell anybody, don't go in there. Okay, so now we're faced with the same conundrum now over 10 years later, 13 years later. Okay, Lauren, make a list of what it is that you want. Well, it's a good thing Tara actually, you know, made good notes and stuff like that because it seemed like a monumental task when Judge Escapa asked her to do that. And look what she was able to come up with. So they can't turn around and say the same thing. We're not going to give you all 8,000 pages. We'll give you what's pertinent. Go look at it and tell us what you want and then we'll give it to you. Already been there, already done that. So here's the list. Are they going to do it or not? How much time was Tara given to review all those documents and files and videos and everything that was in the box? It took a very long time, right? She had to schedule time and go to the McLean County Law and Justice Center to review those. I don't remember how long it took. I know it was at least a year. Ray, do you remember? She she made a number of trips down there because she couldn't get through so many of them on each visit. She only was allowed so much time because there's somebody else in the room, I suppose, with her. I don't know how many trips she made. I, I want to say at least three or four. It just seems like such an odd way to do things. The way they forced her to, you can't tell anybody what you see. You can only take notes. You can't take pictures. It's like this whole thing's a big cat and mouse game that's been going on for a decade. Wait, they told her she couldn't take notes while she was sitting there? No, she could only take notes. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, what'd she do? Like run to the bathroom and write stuff down? <laughs> I just don't understand why they didn't just release all that information then. If they're going to go, let your attorney go view it all. What's the point of forcing her to go down there and take notes? Well, I think Jamie uses this term all the time. It's called splitting the baby. So that's their compromise is we're not, okay, we're not going to let you have it, but we'll let you look at it. So now are they going to split the baby again? Like how how many more quarters can we make out of this one baby? (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard that before. (laughs) Really? It's that old... You know, it's that a biblical, old, yeah, it's it's a biblical, a, it's a biblical lesson <laughs> where, you know, the two mothers are fighting over whose child it is and who loves it more. And they're like, OK, the the um, they're like, Thank OK, Solomon. yeah, we'll just cut it in half and you can have the top and you can have the bottom. And then the mother that loves the baby the most says, no, that'll kill the baby. So just let her have it. And then they turn around. And they're like, OK, you can have it because you love the baby the most, <laughs> except for the state isn't going to say who loves Jamie the most and does the right thing. Let's. uh give it to them. We love Jamie the most. Unfortunately, we don't even have a say in it. The other thing I wanted to bring up, now we have all of this information, right? We know that we have people that were critical witnesses, for example, Foster, that was Susan's investigator. And I believe it was Sanders that did the composites that didn't testify in Jamie's trial. 
But what Sanders testified to was that the Luna boys could not make a composite. They did not see enough features of the person they saw to even make a composite. And that, and that wasn't brought up in Jamie's trial. Just imagine if everybody knew everything, just what we've discovered through FOIA that wasn't presented to the jury. What do these pages say that wasn't presented to the jury? And that's just a really important piece of it too, because that's really what it comes down to, right? When they didn't give the discovery pre-trial, he had no way to fight this. And you can hear that through the podcast, season one. I mean, he had no other way. We outlined the new evidence that we got. He didn't have a way to impeach these witnesses that were just saying he did it. They just gave him nothing. So when the state talks about that it was an accident, that it was a mistake, that it was overlooked, I mean, how many times is key evidence accidentally or mistakenly not turned over. I mean, it just happened with almost every witness in this case by accident. It's not an accident. It's a malicious prosecution. That's what it is. And nobody can convince me otherwise because we have gotten the evidence. We have seen the evidence. We have seen the new evidence. We know the story. And we know the transcripts. We know what people testified to. We know what they said early on. We know what they said later. And it cannot be an accident. I agree with you completely. Everything that we have seen, Jamie should have had. And he never he never had it. We, we get some of these foyers and tell him about it, and he's surprised. You mentioned Sanders. He testified in Susan's trial that the, that the Luna's couldn't have described it. Jamie's attorney, Pistol, I don't know if he had it. He just didn't realize what he had. But different things that we have seen, you take Martinez's testimony about the remarkable blue eyes. One of the FOIAs we filed was to Sanders's notes about how he came up with the picture. Now, whenever you sit down with a composite guy and ask describe them. Martinez never mentioned anything at all about remarkable blue eyes. We've got that now. I don't know why Pistol never found it and never thought to call Sanders. That always gets knocked down as trial tactics or something, why it wasn't uh, not part of uh, Pistol's... It was strategy. Yeah. And and that's all of it. Uh, So, I mean, those are things that if Jamie had the basic information and had been investigated properly at the beginning, we wouldn't be where we are today. But all the information that we've gotten, we know there's, we've seen information about the deals, correspondence, probably slipped through that somebody just missed and it came through to us. But now we know it's there. And that should have been given to Jamie as part of the initial discovery. Everything they used to convict them, everything that they used to eliminate other people, everything to discredit these confessions or why they didn't believe these other confessions, none of that was given. We got partial of it. We know it's there. And so that's what Jamie needs to get. 
And that's the point is we know it's there, right? Because when you get one thing and all of a sudden there's a reference to this other supplemental police report or a reference to another person or a reference to, I think Ray's always been talking about the log. There's a log somewhere because it was referenced in the police report. That wasn't that wasn't ever turned over. They just say they don't, well, we don't have it. Well, you know what? They said they don't have it. They said they didn't have a lot of things before we filed a lawsuit. And then all of a sudden they came up with it, but they didn't come up with all of it because we know there are recordings, other recordings, because they're referenced in police reports. We know they're there. And on top of that, they had Marcus at one point reviewing FOIA stuff. You remember that, Ray? Yes, definitely. He even said at one point we were trying to get information about the reward money, which has completely disappeared. We've never been able to get information about the reward money. They said, well, we basically we asked Barkus and he said he doesn't he qualified it. So it was some some way like his response was he doesn't believe or has no knowledge of any reward money being given out. I'm like, okay, why is he qualifying that? And why is he even looking at it when we're the whole thing is based on corruption by Detective Barkus and Detective Katz? It's just been a convoluted journey. So how would you feel if you were a juror and you convicted Jamie and then when you walked out the door, you got this list of things one through... 18 of stuff that was withheld from you, including a confession by others to the crime. I mean, it can really happen. As a matter of fact, we have Andy, who was a juror in Susan Clickholm's trial, and she was acquitted. And we're going to ask him what he thinks about all of this new evidence. In 2007, Jamie stood alone in court and felt he had no choice because his attorney would not raise issues that Jamie thought were critical to his post-conviction petition. The judge encouraged him to go pro se, telling him how smart he was and that he wouldn't grant this for just any inmate, but that he thought Jamie could handle it. Jamie was granted discovery, but now we know he didn't get everything. We are hopeful that Judge Escapa will shine the light on this issue with a favorable ruling. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. The discovery was the same in both Susan and Jamie's trials, and we now know critical information was missing from discovery. What would the jury think about that? Andy, a juror from Susan Claycomb's trial, took us behind the scenes of the deliberations in her trial. What does Andy think about the new evidence that has come to light in Jamie's case? That's next time on Snow Files.